And, and the thing that kind of captured me right when I saw it, and I know that because I wrote it in the column, was essentially like, what have I, one, what have I lost through time that I don't remember? And what have I purposely re-remembered to be happy that was sad or sad that was actually happy? Like what tricks have I played on myself to protect myself in some ways? And that's a powerful thing to think about because basically you're saying there are things about your life that you think happened, but didn't, or there are formative moments in your life that happened, but you looked at them in one way and you should have looked at them in a different way. And it could have changed the way you thought about the current situation that you're in. Right. And that's, that's what make that's what really gave the movie depth. episode of the formative films project a 20-part podcast series detailing how movies shape us entertain us and help tell the stories of our lives i am your host Braden shaw in each episode we'll look at a selection of movies categorized by a genre or subgenre that each falls into in total we'll hear from 100 people talking about their respective favorite movies that speak to them in unique ways and since it was our most requested topic by far We'll open with a four-part exploration of the lifeblood of studios like A24, coming-of-age films. From the early days of childhood, to the dog days of high school, to discovering your passions in college, to coming to terms with adulthood, these are the stories that define our journey of finding our true identities. So, let's start from the beginning. The admittable mid-80s icon Ferris Bueller once said, Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to take a look around once in a while, you might miss it. It's safe to say those words resonate still some 35 years later, and it's a sentiment that we'll examine throughout our first crop of films. I should also probably add here that it was not necessarily surprising to find the largest swath of films handpicked for this project falling under the coming-of-age umbrella. The tales of the trials and tribulations of youth, the building's roman in literary terms, is a story that, to varying degrees, we can all relate to. For better or worse, we all have to grow up. A majority of people who are interviewed for this project fall in either the college age and or postgrad 20-somethings categories, so that probably played a significant role too. Basically, we're all either coming of age currently or nostalgic of those formative days of the past. And it's that nostalgia that we'll look at and explore first. My name is Sam Mosier and my favorite movie is My Neighbor Totoro. One of Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli's most indelible qualities, or as Sam says, such a dominant motif, is how they capture childhood, a sense of wonder and discovery in such authentic ways. Not only in My Neighbor Totoro, Sam's pick for his favorite movie, but several chapters in the renowned animation studio's classic filmography. It's funny, I think his best film, it's not my favorite, um, but The Wind Rises is like his most, it, it's a movie about adults, um, but so many of the ones that are obviously the classics, Kiki's Delivery Service, Nausicaa, Spirited Away, um, are about these kids. And I think he really gets that they're not these kids just starting off as complete, you know, kind of like moldless clay. Um, and then they go through this journey. They start as characters with real personalities and strengths and I think it's kind of 
a two-pronged development in most of these films. It's the world realizing these characters are stronger than they think, and then even these characters realizing they're stronger than they even know they are. My Neighbor Totoro is also somewhat of a new favorite. Before his introduction to Studio Ghibli, Sam Mosier, a recent graduate at the University of Missouri, grew up on a steady diet of tried-and-true American blockbusters. I'm a big fan. I've watched them since I was a kid. My dad kind of raised me on like blockbuster classics like Star Wars and Pixar movies and the Indiana Jones movies. So, and then as I've grown up, I've kind of diversified with more indie and foreign films. So uh, I try to watch a lot. <laughs> Definitely. I feel that. I feel that. Um, you know, kind of focusing in a little more here, how would you kind of describe your relationship to the work of, you know, Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki? Yeah, it's interesting it's a very recent love. I watched Spirited Away in high school um, with a girl I was dating at the time. It was her favorite movie and I really liked it. Um, it was just not a, 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 like a filmography that was accessible to me. We didn't own them. And of course, streaming wasn't really around back then. Uh, so when HBO Max actually debuted last summer, I watched all of Miyazaki's and a couple other non-Miyazaki Ghibli movies and just fell in love with them. What what about them kind of, you know, drew you in? I, I know obviously they've become, like you mentioned with the HBO Max uh, launch, they've become pretty popular with, especially with our generation, but what, what in particular to you kind of stood out about them? Um, I'm a big fan of animation, like I said, like grew up on Pixar, but what I think it's so special about Miyazaki's movies is that I mean a they're absolutely gorgeous to look at 2d animation is kind of a rarity these days and so even though I guess these movies aren't new it's fun getting to have this whole new world of 2d animation available to me and I also think his you know he has a lot of similar themes throughout his movies whether it's powerful female characters environmentalism um, and kind of the, these mythologies that aren't explained to you just they're just there um, so I think they're perfect for kids and adults. My Neighbor Totoro, Hayao Miyazaki's second feature, originally debuted in 1988. It tells the story of two young girls, Satsuki and Mei, who move to the countryside with their father in order to be closer to their mother, who's currently hospitalized. The girls befriend woodland creatures, such as the Totoros and Catbus, exploring the new world, both in their new home, which may be haunted if you ask Mei, and also the uncertainty that comes with childhood. Not only is it one of Ghibli's more popular features, the titular Totoro also serves as the company's logo. I love My Neighbor Totoro because I think it's deceptively simple. I watch it with a lot of people who almost always like it, but some people are like, oh, it's, you know, it's a kid's movie. Oh, it's, you know, it's a slice of life movie, which in a way it is. I mean, it is a kid's movie, but I think what touched me about it is that I think it, represents childhood and kids imaginations in a way that's more respectful than a lot of other movies i think it kind of nails like the powerful relationships siblings can have and the way kids can be really resilient through terrible things like you know the the movies about them moving because their mom's sick so they have to be close to her so it's definitely not like a just a completely lighthearted um fair but at the same time, one of my favorite film critics, uh, David Sims, he was on uh, Letterboxd and his review was uh, just me and my friends hanging out. And like, I think that's part of why I love this movie so much is that 
while there is like you know kind of a plot going on with the in the background with the with the mom at the same time the movie is really just about these sisters hanging out and befriending these mythical creatures in the woods um and at the same time it's you know they're going through a small development of you know realizing that they're stronger together than they are apart and that they can overcome things they probably couldn't think they could at the beginning um so you know with those kind of themes and changes going through i'm happy just to watch you know some kind of some funny and and lighthearted things happen in between that relationship between Satsuki and May is really the key selling point for Mosier. It'd be misleading to call this a plot-driven film. I mean, Totoro clocks in at a succinct 86 minutes, but sometimes all you need are good vibes. It's a slower-paced movie. I think that's why it might not be everybody's favorite Ghibli movie, but I think its length kind of just makes the, the slowness okay because, you know, even though it takes a bit in order for the sisters to discover the Totoro creatures um you don't have to wait that long in the grand scheme of the film to get there and at the same time the build-up to it shows that these girls have kind of a wild imagination and that they're, they're very close I have a younger brother and a younger sister so I think that's another reason why this movie resonates with me so much I think some of my friends who don't have either a good relationship with their siblings or be like, they don't have siblings at all. I think maybe this film doesn't touch them in the same way, but as an older brother, I, you know, relate with um, the oldest sister quite a bit, especially the scene I remember that was like, Oh, this movie is I remember the scene that elevated it for me. The first time I was like, Oh, this is something special is when the sister uh, the younger sister is starts crying and, you know, Satsuki lets her come into school with her. And then she's like having the best day of her life around all these older kids. And I don't know, like the film like does, you know, not in any real, you know, heartbreaking kind of way, but it does confront obviously the darkness of like, you know, potentially losing your mom. Um, so I think having these sisters, you know, whether it's, you know, running throughout the house or, um, I think another thing about the sibling relationship that really is important to it being as good as it is, is that um, Satsuki never questions May. May is the first one to see the Totoros. And while Satsuki may, maybe like isn't for sure, she never is like, oh, I don't believe you. Um, I think that's like a small detail that I really appreciate. Oh, yeah. And even like um, even the dad supports them, right? I mean, you don't always see that with the parents. Yeah. For sure. There's a, I think a lot of movies that would kind of like laugh it off or they kind of play the parents off as punchlines. Um, this is a w- totally weird analogy, but like, you know, like Jimmy Neutron, boy genius, like the parents like are total like goofballs in there. But again, I think Miyazaki's able to add like lightness and humor to his movies without like making, especially in Totoro, some other films, maybe not so much, but like anybody like a, an explicit punchline. Definitely. And, you know, at the same time, you know, there is there is a pretty serious attitude, at least it feels like they're taking this story seriously in a lot of ways, even with the lighthearted nature. And part of that, you know, are these, you know, these two girls kind of dealing with their fears, right? You know, and they talk about even living in a haunted house at the beginning. And, you know, Maze, she repeats, you know, I'm not afraid. I'm not scared. I'm not afraid. I mean, what, what did you kind of make of how it dealt with, you know, 
these childhood fears that they're having to kind of go through, especially in this kind of crazy world, you know, new house, mom's in the hospital, all these kind of swirling doubts and fears they have to go through. Yeah, you nail it right there that I think what the the film does well is that there is no one single fear. Like there, I think we're supposed to assume that the mom might have tuberculosis. Um, I might be getting that confused with The Wind Rises, which I know that is the disease in that movie. Um, but that is a very real fear. And uh, like, you know, the loss of a loved one is there's far things more terrifying than that. But at the same time, the girls are also afraid of like, what's in the attic or, you know, um, and then, or like to go back to the real world, like what if our dad doesn't pick us up from work? Um, or like, you know, we're afraid of these soot monsters. Like it's, it's a fun balance of that. Like kids have very real rational fears. And at the same time, ones that are completely silly and that you can kind of make light of. Yeah. And you know, I, I, for some reason, you know, I, I kind of thought back to uh, Soul, you know, Pixar's latest release. And a lot of that film deals with, you know, kind of explaining death in a lot of ways, you know, to, to kids or adults or whoever watches it. And, you know, maybe, you know, we're not obviously not told, like you kind of mentioned earlier, what this mo- what the mom's, you know, disease or ailment is. But, you know, we do know she's in the hospital, you know, her, her visit, she was going to go visit the kids, but then she got a cold and had to delay that. And, you know, there's that moment where, you know, Satsuki's like asking granny, like, you know, what if she dies? Like, what do we do? And they, they're kind of trying to wrap their mind around that. I mean, how do you feel like this film kind of handles, obviously there isn't any death in it, but how do you, how do you feel like the film kind of handles that idea of death and grief? Yeah. And, and that's why I think even though they choose for the mom, obviously to live at the end, that the film definitely confronts just like, the complete grief that would come with losing her. Like when she gets that phone call at school and she finds out her, you know, her mom is not going to be coming home and May runs away. And, and then there's this like side threat or scare going on in your mind. It's like, is something going to happen to May? They can't find her. Um, I think that just the idea of them, you know, addressing it and having it there does just as much maybe not just as much, but I think it does enough that you don't have to go all the way with like having the mom die that, you know, again, like it's, it, I think it's teaching kids something real about what, you know, that loss is terrible, but at the same time, not having to make them confronted in this children's movie. Definitely. And, you know, it's interesting because they, at least I will say, you know, for the majority they at least have that father figure there, right? They still have granny there. And, you know, one thing that the dad says earlier, you know, when they see the camphor tree, you know, he says, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he says, you know, when I saw this tree, I knew this would be a good place to live. And, you know, they kind of, I don't know if that's a prayer or just like saying or whatever they say, you know, like, thank you through the street for protecting May and keep doing that. I mean, what do you feel like nature's role is kind of in this film and kind of serving as that healing that protector of these two girls yeah there's like a nice diametric symbolism there with like you know the mom is you know at least for like the first half of the film you would say like digressing like she thinks she's coming home and then she's not able to but then they move into this kind of ramshackled house and it you know becomes a home over the course of the movie and there's that lovely little subplot where the girls are planting the garden and you know while they are at risk of 
losing life with their mom. They're wishing for this little garden to grow. And then of course, like, you know, not directly, but the the power of imagination with the I, I just love that scene so much where the Totoros come to them at night and they're 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 wishing for the plants to grow and the next morning they wake up and it has started sprouting. And um I do think, you know, it's like laws of physics, like for everything, for every reaction and there's an for every action there's an opposite reaction. And I think that's what Miyazaki's getting at with the nature motif. Um, you know, and of course you know, as you mentioned, you know, Totoro, it's funny, he's in this title, I was reading, some people were like, he actually got like the Jaws treatment in a lot of ways, and we don't really <laughs> see him, see him for a lot of the runtime, um, you know, we got Totoro, we got his little friends, we got the cat bus, I mean, first of all, what did you kind of think of the more, you know, fantastical elements of this, you know, that kind of playing with the child's imagination, man? Yeah, and I think that's another thing that you know, I, I talked about earlier, like surprising me that it's way more about the sisters and, you know, their relationship than it is about, you know, the titular Totoros. But I think that's what makes their screen time all the more effective and just delightful. You know, there's all those like jokes and, and I hate to even equate them, but like, you know, they, there are so many children's movies that overdo the cute or like non-speaking uh, characters again like I think Toter's on a whole nother league but you have the minions you have you know Jar Jar does speak but like these these characters that are like good in concept but then you get way too much of them and you're sick of them by movie's end but there's only a few scenes with the Totoros and when you get them they're just so delightful but at the same time have like kind of like a not a menace to them but a thing that feels tangible and real they're not all just there to be cutesy and uh, it reminds me kind of like of the world of Narnia in that way. Um, also because it's these kids discovering it. And, uh, and, it, and it, it, is, it is weird too. Like we have to, Cat Bus. Cat Bus is amazing. I love Cat Bus. I have friends who hate that I love Cat Bus, um, especially because he has so many legs. But again, it's weird. And it, it shows just that like these, you know, kids' minds can't be explained, but I think it's better off that way. Uh, you know, I, I love Cat Bus too. I mean, what what about what about Cat Bus kind of sticks out to you as one of your favorites? I think it's the unexpected nature of it. Again, like Totoro, even if you've never seen a Ghibli movie in your life, you've seen him in stores with the plushie. You've seen, you know, you've seen, he uses it in the Studio Ghibli logo. So. I didn't know about Cat Bus. So when they're sitting in the rain waiting for their dad to pick up and here comes down the road Cat Bus, just the most stupid surprise grin on my face. And I think it's, the, again, the fact that like it looks scary and weird, but there's just something so welcoming and delightful to it that you can't help but like it. Um, it's those like opposing sides that I love Cat Bus. Um, you know, we talk, we've talked about you know the sister the sister's friendship and you know there's even the element that like subplot of like Kanta right you know the boy next door doesn't really know how to communicate with them then eventually kind of becomes a friend I what do you what do you feel like this film kind of says about friendship especially kind of at that you know that young age of you know when kids are really trying to find themselves and really just trying to feel like they belong in a place yeah I think and Miyazaki gets at this in a lot of his movies but that we're ultimately stronger together than we are apart. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like the sisters never question each other's beliefs, even how ridiculous it is. And 
you know, it's Satsuki's belief in these creatures that she's able to find May in the end. And, you know, while, you know, classic kind of like boy girl kind of clashes as you do in grade school or middle school or whatever have you, um, you get at the beginning, but then when it's raining and, you know, he offers the umbrella and they become friends, it's, you know, that's a representation of it right there, as simple as it is, just like they're better together than apart. And even though it came out over 30 years ago, there's a timeless quality to this depiction of childhood. You could tell me this movie came out last year, and I believe you, except for the fact to be like, whoa, this is a 2D animated movie that got made. Um, I mean, there's still some. Wolf Walkers was one of the best of last year. Um, but it's funny. I think it's, it's, it's only gotten better with time. It's funny. The movie was kind of a, I wouldn't say a box office failure, but definitely not a huge success. Um, but through merchandising and the name Ghibli catching on, uh, you know, Totoro has just become more and more popular. And I think the fact that it takes place in the Japanese countryside with cars and there's not a whole lot of technology around that, like, it's kind of a timeless movie. A timeless movie that's accessible and approachable for really anyone of any age. In only 90 minutes, you're going to get a movie with beautiful animation lovable characters that will either make you want to call your siblings or wish you had them um, and remind you why the power of family and imagination is stronger than we give it credit for. Next up is another classic from Studio Ghibli's catalog. My name is Brianna Lamb and my favorite movie is Spirited Away. Just 13 short years later, in 2001, Miyazaki and Ghibli dropped what many considered to be the crown jewel of the studio. Obviously, the story itself is so captivating and dynamic, and there's so much that happens in that movie, but it does it so well. It doesn't feel crammed, but there is a lot that happens. And, you know, it's a movie about so many different things, you know, the differences between good and evil, uh, love and friendship. Uh, redemption and forgiveness so at any point in your life you can watch that movie and relate to it in a different way and I think that's beautiful and you know and the story aside it also has gorgeous visuals like unparalleled and the music from Joe Sashi is like amazing and when a movie has a good score not only does it add to the movie itself you can take that music with you afterwards and listen to it and you're reminded of this movie and you're brought back to that place so I think all of those things make people continually drawn to Spirited Away and other Ghibli movies like it. Brianna Lamb, now a student at the University of Arkansas and full disclosure my cousin, has a slightly different relationship with Studio Ghibli than Sam does. How would you describe your relationship to, to film? Probably a lot of it is related to my dad because he was such a nerd and he showed us like all sorts of movies. He was the one who showed me Spirited Away as a kid. And um, so I've always enjoyed watching movies with him. Like I remember um, when we were younger, he would just come home from work with a new movie that he had bought and we would all watch it immediately. And that was really fun. And I don't know, it's always been something like when the new Marvel movies come out, we all go see them together. And of course, whenever our our family gets together, we talk about movies. And um, so probably more of like a familial relationship and then as I've gotten older of course my friends that I have made also are really into movies so probably like a social thing as well as just I love art of all kinds so movies is 
nothing um, uh, foreign, I guess. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned uh, or alluded to your introduction to Spirited Away. Um, what is your relationship to the work of uh, Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli? Well, uh, like I said, the first time I ever watched uh, a Ghibli movie was Spirited Away. It was the first one I watched. I think I was probably nine, maybe, when I first saw it. And, uh, you know, at the time, all I had seen was like Disney animated films. And Disney is great, you know, they have great storytelling. But Miyazaki and Ghibli does something a lot more um, magical, I guess, in my opinion. And so it was something I'd never seen. And after I watched that movie, I just knew that I had to like see a whole bunch, all of the other ones, uh, because this was a whole world of movies I didn't know existed until then. And so ever since then, I've just tried to watch as many Ghibli movies as I can and own as many as I can until now that they're out on HBO Max, it doesn't matter, but <laughs> you know. Spirited Away, written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki, follows a young girl, Chihiro, who enters a fantastical spirit world in search of her parents. She has to complete a series of tasks and find inner courage to save them and herself, gaining some new friends like Haku and Lin and perspective along the way. Yeah, real quick before we get into like the more plot mechanics of this, um, this did win Best Animated Feature at, at the Academy Awards in 2003. Um, just as far as this film's uh like reputation goes um how, how do you how do you feel like how do you feel like it's where or i guess where do you feel like it stands kind of among the the best uh animated films that you've seen like how where i would put it mm -hmm. well obviously i would put it at the top i think it's right. the best animated movie i've ever seen and honestly i think it's reputation amid like people who really know film is um a good it's like founded its reputation is um what it should be i think amongst like the general population i think it's underrated because a lot of people are a lot of well people in america like western culture is scared i guess or finds it weird to dip into other cultures and so they, they shy away from movies like that and i think it's a shame because they're so beautiful and there's so much to you know learn from those movies so Right, right. No, I, I agree. I totally agree. But uh, anyway, so let's let's kind of get into this a little bit. Obviously, we kind of open up um, this family moving uh, to a new place, um, and they find uh, this abandoned. Would would calling it a theme park be accurate? I I, I think they yeah. Might that's what that. they call it in the movie, anyways. Yeah. So they, I mean, they find this abandoned theme park. Um, the the parents, you know, kind of bring Chihiro along. Um, obviously, she's scared. Um, and then, and then we kind of, I mean, Miyazaki really doesn't pull any punches here. I mean, he really just goes for the, I mean, they literally gorge themselves and they literally turn into pigs. Um, this isn't in some way, in a lot of ways, this isn't a very subtle movie, um, with his, with his comments on consumerism. Um, what, what do you think of Miyazaki's choices just in regards to basically, I mean, literally just pointing fingers about, uh, humanities, I guess, greed and just, yeah, that idea of consumerism. I think for like that point in the movie when he's when he's so obvious about his thoughts on greed, I think that it because he's so blunt about it, it comes across. And I don't think uh, talking about greed is something you can do well subtly because it's such a all-consuming thing, anyways. So I think the like shock value of not only like them turning into pigs in that scene, but then later with no face, uh, I think I think it works really well to get the point across. So. Yeah, no, I mean, and then also, I, I, I also found it really fascinating just um, 
the world building in this in this movie you know i think that um obviously i this is really my only experience with it but uh, i feel like miyazaki does a really great job um, and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this but i feel like he really does a great job of of building out this world because i mean there's only only like two two or i guess three locations in this movie but it feels so expansive at the same time well i think i read someone say uh, once that miyazaki does a great job about leaving the um, leaving some important key parts of his movies really vague and both in like a in a uh, backstory kind of way and that leaves it um more relatable for whoever's watching and then also in the story way he he alludes to certain things that exist beyond what you're seeing in the world that you're watching and it makes it feel so much bigger like there's so much more there and you don't get to know all of it but you get the sense that this really is something real and that there's more to it than that. Right, right. And, and another part of that, of course, is the um, kind of supernatural element um, of this story. You know, I mean, I, at first, you know, when Chihiro um, kind of meets Haku, um, you know, she, she thinks he's dreaming. She thinks he's dreaming. She can't really wrap her mind around this. Um, and of course, the, you know, how, how she has to like... Um, hold her breath as she walks across the bridge because she's human and there's a there's a certain aroma if you will um, attached to that uh, what did you think of the supernatural elements in this movie and kind of how those are handled well i love it i'm a huge fan of uh you know magical things or things that are unattainable and uh i think it's really cool and i think that he does it uh really well he has really interesting character design some really uh cute character design which i'm a sucker for too um so i like it a lot <laughs> And, uh, and, there, and there's kind of another element, we talked about the greed aspect a little bit, but there's also kind of this thing where, uh, I mean, they asked Chihiro if she's ever worked a day in her life. Um, you know, of course she's a kid, which I find kind of a funny question. Um, Cause I mean, I feel like she can't be more than what, like 10 years old or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, how, how do you feel like this, this movie kind of addresses that uh, work ethic, you know, and, and, kind of, and kind of how humans are, humans are deemed as lazy and almost worthless in that respect? Well, I think, we often are kind of lazy sometimes. I think we all feel that way anyways, or we all don't have the confidence to like believe in ourselves to do certain things, or we kind of victimize ourselves sometimes. And I think this movie does a great job of, of showing that um, one, if you like working really hard is worth it and you can do it regardless of who you are, regardless of your background. And the other thing is that you don't have to do it alone. Chihiro doesn't do it alone. She has these friends who help her along the way so that she can stand on her own and do these things. And in the end, she's much stronger for it. Um, uh, and, and, then, and then on top of that, she kind of learns, um, or, or I think a big part of Chihiro and I guess Sen, if you want to refer to her as that, um, is, is fear, you know? And I feel like fear kind of plays a really, um, adamant or not not adamant but a really large part of of her story you know and I, I think that I mean of course she's the biggest thing is she's afraid of her parents fate and kind of trying to save her parents but also I feel like there's kind of uh the fear of like growing up you know and like the fear of future and the fear of an unknown future um how, how, how did you feel like uh fear especially from like a child's perspective was portrayed in this movie well I think um 
they do a really good job with um, showing that she's fearful, but also curious. Like we see moments where she's like clinging on to her mom, but she also kind of wants to see what's on the other side or certain moments like that more later on in the film. But um, it's, it's uh, that that's very true of children. Like children might be very scared, but they're at the same time very curious. And so it's interesting how he balances that in this movie. Is this a... Uh... I think I know the answer to this, but um, is this a hostile work environment? A hostile work environment? <laughs> At the bathhouse? <laughs> um, you know, I would say yes. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. want to work there. Oh, yeah. No, I, I was just, it just, it just kind of reminded me. I'm like, why, why would anyone want to work there? You know, I just thinking of this, like, because they're, they're mistreated terribly. I mean, even when they, even when they get all the gold, um, Yubaba makes them give it all away. Like what would be the, what would be the, uh, the reasoning to even work at this bathhouse? Well, I think, I think we kind of get the sense that most people who work there are there because they don't have anywhere else to be, or they were trapped there or something. Um, <clears throat> because even, um, Kamaji in the boiler room alludes to the fact that his curse is to run the boiler room and make the soot work for him and stuff like that. And and Lynn, who talks about who is probably my favorite character in this movie, uh, uh, she she alludes to how she wants to get a train ticket and get out of here someday. So I think I don't know that we're supposed to believe that people are willingly working for you, Papa, but um, why is Lynn your favorite character? Um, Lynn is my favorite character for probably a stupid reason. I just think that she's hilarious and um, alongside the fact that I had never seen a female character like Chihiro, I had never ever seen a female character like Lynn. Um, she's very strong-willed and I think it's really cool to see um, her um, take Chihiro under her wing like that. I think that's really sweet and you know, she's a whole character on her own, even though she doesn't have that much um, screen time or anything like that. Um, plus, we love Susan Egan. I love Susan Egan. She's great. Yeah, and then, of course, the the even, I guess I kind of alluded to it earlier, but that change between Chihiro and Sen and how Yubaba kind of take, takes her name away. Um, and, and I feel like that also kind of applies to Haku in this, and just that that idea of that loss of identity and that and that finding yourself. Um, how did you think? How did you think that was kind of explored? Um, that 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 idea of your identity and kind of finding yourself you know, on your own way. Well, when Chihiro's name is stolen and Haku like tells her about how important it is to remember, uh, and then we we see her already forgetting her name. I think uh, it's just a testament or or a Miyazaki trying to explain how easy it is to forget yourself, especially amidst like all these changes in your life or in Chihiro's life and uh, the importance of uh, not getting too caught up in it, like going full force and like working hard and, you know, experiencing this new adventure, but not forgetting where you come from and who you are at your core. And the character of Chihiro was so different than other female characters that Brianna had seen in film, whether it be animated or live action. Chihiro was the first female character I saw whose arc wasn't about being saved and it wasn't about um, being beautiful. In fact, she has to work hard and sacrifice her naivety for the sake of saving her parents. And she ultimately saves herself. But 
Haku and Chihiro kind of save each other at the same time. And it's not Haku saves Chihiro. It's it's mutual and it's about friendship. It's not this like Prince Charming moment or something. It's both of them being friends. And I think that that was really powerful for me um, because of what I had seen as a kid versus this. Um, and and you, and you kind of dug into something there. How important is it um, for not only animated films, but also just like, I guess, film in general uh, to have have those female characters not be reliant on a love interest or reliant on whatever outside interest, but also just being kind of the main character of their own story. Well, obviously it's so important because um, if you want to write, just in the way that um, movies with a male character can really inspire young men or even women to like be themselves and have their own stories. Obviously, I believe it's just as important for women to have that and to be, um, uh, you know, the guiders of their own story and not rely on men in a, in a society that's so reliant on um, men's opinion. And I especially think it's important to see uh, funny female characters because uh, it's comedy is such an identity in its own that's separate of like what jobs you're doing and the feelings you're supposed to have. But comedy lets you take everything that's happening to you and laugh at it. And in a world that's still not so um, accommodating for women and a lot of other minority groups, I think it's important to have a sense of humor about it. Otherwise you're just kind of sad about it. And, you know, as someone who I like to consider pretty funny myself, I like to see it on the screen. <laughs> uh, and you kind of mentioned it there, like, how how funny is this movie because I feel like this is like a really this kind of dealing with some dark stuff but like there's a lot of great moments of humor I think yeah this movie is hilarious I mean there's there's some really good cuts like when uh Lynn and Chihiro are cleaning out the bathtub and Lynn is like can you go get uh an herbal soak token from the foreman and Chihiro's like what's an herbal soak token and then uh, she explains it and then we see Chihiro run off and then we see her run back in she goes hey Lynn what's a foreman and then there's a hard cut and it's hilarious and there's so many moments like that and that humor kind of you know lets you keep watching the movie instead of just feeling bogged down by all the heavy stuff that you're seeing too. And while it's certainly unlike a typical children's film if you will the uniqueness of Spirited Away plays to its advantage. It's beautiful if you only watch it for the visuals you'll get something out of it if you only watch it for the music you'll get something out of it but then even if you're going to it just wanting to pay attention to those things you'll be blown away by every other aspect of this movie um and it's definitely if you've never seen this movie it's definitely something you've never seen anywhere um uh and it'll it'll probably freak you out in the beginning in a good way <laughs> so it's been well documented that Studio Ghibli's influence runs deep. The studio's distribution deal with Walt Disney Pictures certainly helps, especially with another premier animation studio, Pixar. My name is Chris Hetty, and my favorite movie is Inside Out. Chris Hetty, a grad student in GTA at KU, has a deep love for both Inside Out and Pixar as a whole, even if he was once subjected to watching Brave on his birthday. So the reason why I picked the movie I did was because... Um, it's my favorite Pixar movie. And when I was a, about to be a senior in college, I promise I'm going to answer your question. When I was a senior in college um, was when this, the summer before was when this movie came out. 
And I was an intern at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette in the feature section. And I convinced them to let me write a column about it. And the column was essentially about Inside Out and Pixar and all these things. And I think the reason why the movie related to me in so many ways is I feel like I'm the exact demographic for Pixar in that when I was, you know, Toy Story came out and like I was the right age. Like I was basically a little bit younger than Andy to the point where like I had a Woody doll. Uh, I wrote my name on his boot instead of Andy. Um, you know, uh, sleepovers when I was a kid, like you either watched Star Wars or like Finding Nemo or Monsters, Inc. Uh, I literally, gosh, what birthday was it? Maybe my 19th or 20th birthday. Uh, a friend of mine went to the movie theater uh, to see Brave. Um, like that was my birthday present, which was frustrating because Brave is problematic. Uh, but so that I, I think, I mean, Pixar is an event to me, right? So like anytime there's a new Pixar movie, like it's, we're going to go see it or we're going to do something about it. I mean, for me and my wife's anniversary, we went and saw Toy Story 4, right? Uh, like we watched Soul recently. And so Pixar has been a big deal. I mean, I remember watching Up with my first girlfriend, like that was kind of a formative moment, right? And so uh, for me, Pete Doctor can do no wrong. Uh, he's like, you know, he's, he's the creative director at Pixar now, which is great. Um, and that's really important because I think uh, the best Pixar movies, you see, you hear this all the time where it relates to the adults and also the children, but I think the best Pixar movies say something about that relationship too, or like our relationship with each other, or with the world or um, trying to explain things. And so uh, I have a high bar for Pixar because uh, some, some of the great ones can really shape the way you look at the world and other ones like a bear starts talking in the middle through and you're like, what is this going on? Don't, you guys, nobody needs to see Brave. It's really disappointing. Maybe it's because it's my, my birthday and I was expecting more. Maybe that would have been the reason. But so I, I, I really appreciate Pixar and I really um, view it. I hardly ever view it as like a children's movie and more of like, this is another chapter in a story that's been going on since I was like five. However, it was another children's movie that sparked Chris's love for the medium early on, Kangaroo Jack. When I was growing up, uh, there were, this is gonna make me sound old, but like Blockbuster was like the place to go, right? So um, probably twice a month, my parents would let me go rent a movie um, and watch it by myself. Um, and so, my earliest movie memory, this I guess is the way that I would explain this, uh, is going to Blockbuster and my parents being upset that I kept renting Kangaroo Jack. Um, just kept renting it and they were like, why? Like you just saw this like a month ago, why? And I was like, I love it, like it's great. So that's basically my relationship with movies is I have kind of an ob obsessive love for the ones that I really love. And sometimes it takes me a minute to like really accept to go a little bit further or do something different, right? Um, and step out of what I already like. So I kind of stick to the directors that I like, to the actors that I like. But at the same time... I typically don't, see this is kind of the weird thing about me. Like I'm obsessive in the movies that I like, but I also don't like to watch them very often because I don't want to like taint that memory, if that makes sense. And so like every year I'll watch Inside Out once. Um, like I'll watch Johnny Darko once. Uh, I'll watch V for Vendetta on November 5th. Uh, like I'll 
all these things. And so, but with this movie, we watched it once during quarantine. I watched it alone. And then my wife wanted to watch it because we got Disney Plus and we're like, okay. Two weeks later, watched it again. And I was like, yep, just as good. <laughs> like just, just, just works. And so, I mean, I think the ending makes it, makes the journey worth it. Um, in a weird way, like it's actually like pretty well acted. Like I think the voice acting is actually really good. They cast it so well that like every time Louis Black is yelling is funny and like Bill Hader is a perfect person to be like just terrified the whole time. Um, Amy Poehler was perfect as Joy. Um, so like, I, I think that it's just kind of nice to have a movie that, I mean, it's classic Pixar so that you can watch it and feel good about yourself. You can learn something about yourself. Like there's just enough things in it that it makes it not boring. Um, like I, I, we watched Frozen 2 with my niece recently. Couldn't watch that two weeks later, right? It's just like, whew, boy, another song, huh? Interesting, okay. We're in the woods again, okay. So it's just, I think Inside Out is brisk enough. It's interesting enough. It's funny enough. It's cathartic enough that like, it just kind of keeps you moving the whole, the whole way. From 2015, Inside Out, written by Pete Docter, Meg Lafave, Josh Cooley, and Ronnie Del Carmen, and also directed by Docter, follows 11-year-old Riley, who's just moved from her Minnesotan home to a tiny apartment in San Francisco with her parents. The film follows her dealing with these emotions of uprooting her life, specifically joy, sadness, anger, disgust, and fear. It's high concept and abstract, yet Doctor and his cast and crew pulled a bit of a magic trick off in how authentic and grounded the movie looks and feels. If you can think back to the first time you watched this, um, and maybe even coming into it, that I feel like with Pixar, um, they, they kind of take, a lot of these movies take place in this kind of, obviously with Disney too, like fantastical world, you know, they're talking cars or talking toys or a bug's life or any, any sort of, I mean, up kind of to an extent takes place in the real world, but still yeah. this, I feel like Inside Out was one of the first Pixar movies where it was really about the kid and really kind of getting into their mindset, but still at the same time, it's pretty abstract concept. Like, I mean, Pete Docter was literally like personifying like these emotions, right? And so what were you kind of thinking going into this as far as just this kind of pretty abstract concept? Yeah, I don't think I had a ton of like big expectations going into the movie um, because of that idea. I mean, I think um, I was interested. I mean, I think the trailer was pretty basic of just like what's going on inside of their heads. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. And uh, you know, you look at Pete Doctor, he'd done Monsters Inc. and Up, and you're like, all right, I trust that. Like, I, you know, that, that's some credibility. Um, and I think you're right. Like, I think uh, the reason why this movie worked so well is because everything that happens, so like with Toy Story, you have to kind of, you kind of have to like trust it a little bit. You have to say like, okay, I'm going to trust that, like, I'm just going to accept that the toys go, you know, dead whenever somebody walks in the room like that's that's kind of weird or like talking toys okay that's not that's kind of a reach but okay like I'll go with you or finding Nemo like talking fish or monsters are real like you had some some of these Pixar movies you really have to like just take the leap with Inside Out you really don't because it starts with like a person it starts with people in the real world and whenever you go into this other like fantastical place it's really just somebody's brain so technically it's still somebody like still like real like you can you can kind of connect to that like because 
and then you see, okay, well, wow, joy. Yeah, I feel happy sometimes because this is what joy could be. Like this is explaining it in some ways. And then you zoom out and it's Riley doing something and she's happy. And then you zoom in and then she, you know, there's all those yellow balls and you're like, okay, this makes sense. Like it just connects really, really easily. Um, I think particularly when like joy and sadness gets sucked up and they go into the recesses of Riley's brain. And then you see that in Riley's actual life, joy and sadness are not there anymore. And then it even further connects that like, okay, these things really matter. Like if you're not in this, you know, command center or whatever that's called, uh, then, then you're not part of it. I think the other, the other thing that's fascinating about the connection too is, you know, they, they use this movie to explain depression to children. Uh, and as somebody who has been depressed in my teen, like th this is exactly how it works. Uh, you know, the, the way at the end of the movie, the board just like starts to kind of freeze over, you know, and you can't touch any buttons or anything. That's what it feels like to be like, I don't, I don't, can't feel any emotions right now. Like this is not good. And so I think the reason why the fantastical part of the movie makes a ton of sense is because it's so easy to buy into because then when Riley and, or excuse me, when joy and sadness get back in the command center, Riley can feel emotions again. She can feel happy and she can feel sad. So the connection is just, just really seamless where, whereas like that I had, I struggled with that with soul in some ways, not that this is a soul podcast, but I know that you've seen it um, where like it just bounces around a lot and all of a sudden he's a cat and it's like, it's just, there's just a lot. And so I think, it was just a really simple, okay, this means why, and you're like, okay, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. And so I think that's what really helped it for me. Right, and I think, and I feel like one of the more interesting parts of this is um, kind of you mentioned how Joy joy is kind of the main, or the, the leader, I guess, in Riley's brain, and I feel like a lot of, a lot of the decision-making, especially like say when they get the idea to like for her to run away and stuff, a lot of it kind of plays into like emotional immaturity. And, and I feel like, I mean, even at the end, like, oh, what's puberty? Like, you know, like they, they don't, they're kind of just learning this as on the fly. And, and I, I feel like that's so interesting because I feel like with Pixar, right? Like they almost have like grown up alongside us. You know, I know Toy Story 3 was like a huge, like just gut punch for a lot of people, especially like those that were like going off to college right right when Andy was going off to college and like in this one it's it's obviously uh, Riley's younger than Andy at that stage but still it's kind of dealing with that like preteen teen angst if you like I was this might make you feel old too but I was like 17 when this came out and mm -hmm. um and, and it, I feel like that kind of it just really captured because I was too young for Toy Story 3 when it came out to kind of feel like that mm -hmm. kind of same emotional range but like when Inside Out came out, I'm like, wow, like they're really digging in to like depression and angst and like all these, like, you don't even know how to like describe it, like that emotion mm -hmm. that you're going through. It's like every four years, they're like, all right, we've made some good ones. Let's, uh, yeah, it's time for existential crisis movie. Uh, so we're going to throw out, so that's what Soul was. They're like, you know, people have, let's just throw out a, you know, our next one. Um, but no, I totally agree. And I, and I, I was one of those Toy Story 3 people. Like we went and saw Toy Story 3 at midnight. And then afterwards went to IHOP at two in the morning and had sad pancakes and realized that our childhood was over. Like that was, that was it. And so, yeah, I think, I think the beauty of the movie too is there is that maturation and they actually physically show it with the core memories falling away. And that, that was such a powerful thing when you see, uh, I mean, you think about it, it's like all individualized little islands, right? So there's like Goofball Island and then it falls away. And then it's like Friendship Island and that falls away. And 
she's kind of losing literally who she is. And then, and that's kind of a, uh, a, you know, emotionally immature way to look at the things that you like. And so, because I think, again, the thing I always tell people, not to make this about sports, but the thing I always tell people about sports is, you know, you don't usually like a certain team because they're a good or because they're bad. You usually like a certain team because you have some emotional connection to it, right? And so I covered Nebraska football. They were bad. When I wrote that they were bad and people read that, they got angry. Well, why would they get angry? Well, they get angry because I'm saying the thing that you love because your grandpa took you there when you were seven, it doesn't matter because they're not good. That's what they read. That's the emotional reaction to it. And so when you're looking at this movie, the end of it, when the separate islands are no longer separate, it's now one huge island and it's all the things she is into one because that's really who we are. We aren't just one specific part of it. We're not just goofy or just whatever. It's, it's kind of all into one. And I bet you, you know, so Riley's what, 11. Um, I would bet that five years in inside out time, that whole island falls apart when she's a sophomore or junior in high school. And there's another crisis. And then before she goes to college, it's a brand new thing. And then four years after that, it's going to fall apart again, because that's the way that it works. And so it's kind of like the first step into this long line of like, who you become as a person. And that's what's amazing about this movie is that it's about five emotions and a girl who like really, I think it really takes place in the real world over like a day and a half, I think like they move, she goes to school, has a bad day, tries to leave the next day, comes home. And that simple concept has us talking about like who you are as a person. And that's, that's the beauty of Pixar is that, that, that they can make us do that with such a simple idea. Right. And, um, and I, and I feel like you kind of mentioned it there, obviously the core memories play into this, but I feel like this, not only does this kind of play into the loss of childhood, but also just how you remember things. And, and I feel like kind of play into that. And they think every, memory has to be happy or else it's worthless or every every mem- like if, it, if it's even tinged by a sort of sadness um then then it's not worth it's not worth having anymore and i feel like that's kind of the the journey that they go on right and um and and that kind of plays into i'm curious what you think of like the perspectives in this movie right because i feel like because i feel like a lot of it is kind of filtered through joy and, and we're kind of led to believe that joy, joy is the person that needs to be, be in control and joy and she has to make Riley happy or else she's going to, she's going to hate San Francisco. She's going to hate all of this, but then kind of by the end, you know, as joy is kind of looking on that, on that memory of Riley sitting on the tree as she missed mm-hmm. the game winning shot. Um, I, I feel, I feel like your perspective kind of changes um, as you, as you kind of make your way through this. Totally. And, and the thing that kind of captured me right when I saw it, and I know that because I wrote it in the column, was essentially like, what have I won? What have I lost through time that I don't remember? And what have I purposely re-remembered to be happy that was sad or sad that was actually happy? Like, what tricks have I played on myself to protect myself in some ways? And that's a powerful thing to think about because basically you're saying there are things about your life that you think happened, but didn't, or there are formative moments in your life that happened, but you looked at them in one way and you should have looked at them in a different way. And it could have changed the way you thought about the current situation that you're in. Right. And that's, that's what make, that's what really gave the movie depth was saying, okay, it's not just a happy or a sad memory. There's things in between. 
and what really constitutes a memory and what constitutes happy and what constitutes sad. And, th and this also, I mean, so this came out in 2015. This is kind of, this is kind of before the real big mental health push movement where it was kind of like, it's okay to be okay. Um, this was kind of at the really the beginning of that. And I think of it from just like from an internet perspective of, uh, you know, posts on Pinterest or posts on Twitter or Facebook of just like, give yourself a break, you know, take five minutes. Like it's okay to be, to feel your feelings about all these things. And this, I think kind of really helped that because what it was saying was you cannot be happy without being sad. And it is okay to feel sad because you need to feel sad. And that's why you're able to basically take this movie and help explain depression. It's why you're able to show this to children and you can say, hey, you know, like remember when this happened in, in Inside Out and that was really sad, huh? Yeah, and, and that was okay because this, 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 and this. And so it's kind of like, it just gives you all these tools to explain things to children, which is really important because I think we all know, you know, the kid in elementary school who was like a bully or like was mouthing off or was doing something in, on the playground or whatever, who was just like very clearly angry but like didn't want to admit it or couldn't admit it. And you almost want to like go back in time and show this movie to that kid and be like, hey, like it's okay to feel angry. Like it's okay, but we need to do X, Y, and Z to move on, right? And so that that's what I think the genius is, is that uh, you try and figure out, okay, I, I, I'm almost trying to figure out like, okay, when I have kids, like what's the perfect age to show this to my children so they can be emotionally normal people. Um, not that this like fixes anything by any means, but it helps, right? And so I think that, I think that what it does is it really shows that you, because you, at the same time, like you also need anger sometimes to make decisions or you need to be fearful. I mean, think about the pandemic. Like it's, this is, you're going through all the ranges of emotions where, you know, every happy memory that you're having in the back of your mind, you're like, yikes, there's still a pandemic going on. Should I really be this happy? Or you're angry because everything that's going on and you're like, this is taking away all these things or you look at the COVID numbers and you're sad and, uh, or, you know, you're disgusted with something like, and I think that there's, there's two sides of so many emotions that this really kind of gives you, and I, it gives you kind of a full range of how to feel in some ways. And this is also interesting too, because they, they originally started with like six emotions. I think there was one other one that they started with. I couldn't remember what it was. Um, but they brought it down to five and it was just as, um, just as impactful right and and I feel like um like the literal well because I've even heard stories obviously I don't have kids myself but I've heard stories of other people uh like parents that are like you know my kid now after seeing this movie they they can say sometimes oh anger's in control now or sadness is in control mm -hmm. now and like that's just a way to process things and I feel like a literal like manifestation of that is uh is bing bong and and mm -hmm. just like that idea of I remember when they're when him, him and Joy are kind of stuck down in the pit of like forgotten or, or whatever it's called. Uh, it, I almost got like these Back to the Future vibes because they were like disappearing and like oh we're forgotten we're down here and I feel like I, I'm sure I, I, it's been done to se several extents in like the Pixar like universe or whatever. But like I don't know if I'd really seen before um, that like literal idea of like in real time losing your childhood. And like losing, like losing this, like this idea of just like Bing Bong was really the bridge and he kept trying to come back. But like as Riley's growing up, like sometimes it kind of gets lost in the wayside. Here's what I would say. I think the only other time 
was Toy Story 3, but there's a difference. Toy Story 3, Andy is physically giving away his childhood to Bonnie, I think is what her name is, mm-hmm. at the end of Toy Story 3, giving his toys away, right? Uh, in Inside Out, Riley isn't making that decision. She's actually losing it. And that's a key difference. Giving your child away, your childhood away, is a moment where you can say, okay, from after this point, I'm going to be an adult, or I'm going to college, or this is the end of it. Losing your childhood in a, the way Riley does is what actually happens, where one second you're, you know, not allowed, you can't drive, you're not allowed to go anywhere, you're holed up in your house, you're watching Kangaroo Jack for the ninth time that year, like you're doing nothing, and all of a sudden you've got a curfew, it's 10 o'clock, you're leaving, you're not playing in your room anymore, like you're not really a kid anymore, all of a sudden you're going to, you know, you know, social events in high school, like all of a sudden you, I mean, it just, it happens. And that's what happens with Bing Bong is what actually happens in real life where, uh, you know, all of a sudden you realize that you're an adult now. And the, the genius of Bing Bong in so many ways is that it's so silly and dumb and weird and stupid, but it's so worth it for take her to the moon for me, which is again, the manifestation of your childhood saying, yeah, go ahead. This is right for you. Like this is this is time for me to not be around anymore. And what's interesting is with what happens to Bing Bong, that means essentially, if you take it literally, that Riley never thinks of him ever again. And so that again goes back to what was I worried about or curious about or in love with when I was seven or six that I just don't think about it anymore because I can't because it's been replaced by all these other memories or all these other things. Admittedly, Chris says he's not much of a crier when it comes to watching movies, but this is a Pixar movie after all. Like I, there are a few movies that have actually made me cry. Like I can think of uh, Saving Mr. Banks actually made me cry. Um, the end when she's like watching the movie on screen. Um, that's real. I mean, I really have a tough time. Like this movie was a disaster. Um, Perks of being a wallflower, probably. Um, but uh, I'm really not, and that's why I think this this the great Pixar movies because they have made me cry. Make me be like, okay, I need to realize what is going on with my emotions right now and why I'm feeling this way, and like really kind of gauge what's up. Because I mean. <sighs> Yeah, I'll go see, you know, I remember watching Schindler's List and not crying, but being like, wow, this is super depressing. Or like watching Roma. I remember watching Roma and being like, I feel horrible, but I'm not crying. Um, So no, I'm actually not, which which is what makes this so weird, I think. Yeah, I'm not I'm not either. But I will say when watching like bing bong say like flyer to the moon for me or whatever oh. it just it's it's over game over no it's game over it's completely game over because there's so many i mean there are like three different times in, in inside out that are like straight up i mean i you can watch it within two weeks of each other and it's gonna make you feel some type of way and like the, and you know what's coming like you know at the very end like Riley's going to come home and her parents are going to hug her. I know that I'm going to cry then. And it doesn't matter what time of day it is. It doesn't matter if I had just seen it. Like, you know it's coming, but it works every time. So whether it's to laugh about how San Francisco ruined pizza or unpack depression and emotional processing, Inside Out really does have something for everyone. I think if you like Pixar, 
and you like Toy Story and the usual Pixar stuff, Inside Out does the best job of explaining why you like those movies. Or Inside Out cuts through the kind of shadowy places of Toy Story or um, Soul even and tells you why you feel the emotions you do about your childhood. Like, I think if you watch this movie, you're going to think critically about the way you grew up. And it could be, and it could be a good, and it could be a bad, right? I mean, it could be an emotion. I mean, it, it could be an emotionally exhausting experience. However, if you are somebody who likes to reflect, if you're somebody who likes to um, just, I think if you want to think critically about your life, this is a great movie for it and easy and digestible because there was a great, there was a tweet uh, recently about soul um, that said, uh, it said, you know, Pixar making Toy Story. It was like, let's make a movie about toys. And then it was like Pixar making soul. And I was like, let's make a movie about the inner dimensions of our mind and how, how we become who we become. And somebody quote tweeted it and was like, well, actually that's kind of what Toy Story is about, right? Like your place in the world and who you are and what's your purpose. And like, that's basically kind of soul too. The thing I like about Inside Out is it doesn't make any bones about it, right? There's no gimmick. It's like literally the emotions explaining to you why they are the way that they are. And so I think it cuts through all of that and really gives you like a good understanding um, of who you might be and, and makes you think and laugh and probably cry. And that's coming from somebody who doesn't cry. My name is Asif Hawk, and my favorite movie is What's Eating Gilbert Grape. As Asif says, there are several different angles you could take when looking at this film. Yeah, like there's a there's a lot to talk about, you know, especially with like about this movie, and especially now, um, like I know there's a lot of cr criticism about you know Leonardo DiCaprio playing somebody with a like a, a role. Um, of somebody with the, with the mental handicap. And, you know, that um, makes you think like, oh, was that, you know, like a conversation back then? Like, did people talk about, you know, his, you know, ability to play this role or like, um, yeah. And so, and like now, like we are, you know, taking, you know, we as, as like, you know, like people who make new movies, people who watch movies where, um, we're, we're, we're kind of questioning that now, you know, with like the roles and like who can play or who should actually play like the roles, you know, um, which I think is great. I think it's a great turning point um, and how movies are made and how movies are viewed and perceived and understood and en enjoyed. Um, and yeah, there's just, I don't know, there's a lot to, with Gilbert Grape, uh, you really see so many like int like intrinsic aspects of what seems to be like an American family 
in like some rural town somewhere in the United States. And I feel like if people who haven't seen that movie don't really, or like don't, don't know that like that kind of stuff is actually, you know, going on or it's, and it's happening, you know, maybe it's not happening like all at once to one family, you know, but you know, like parts of it are probably happening, happening to some family like out there. And yeah, I think that's like, I don't know. And like with COVID now, like you can't even, you, um, it's hard to even uh, consider that movie and like perceive it like in the environment of, of COVID and you're seeing, I don't, know, I don't want to go off track, but like you're seeing like movies and shows that are coming out like on, on Netflix and Sorry if I'm, I don't, maybe I shouldn't say like move like uh, provider names, but like you're seeing the like films and uh, come out and, you know, they're trying to portray the like the COVID environment, you know, like people wearing masks and, um, and stuff like that. And like, you, you can see like, uh, there are more like hospital like move like shows coming out, like shows about people working at uh, like a hospital and, um, but you're seeing that and now like with uh with film like and in, in, to put it broadly like today um and and then you think about like gilbert grape and it's just like it's it's kind of a snapshot um in a way of america in, in like a point in time you know and i don't remember if they actually say like what the time frame is in the movie you know and so and like, I don't know, when I first watched it, like, I, that never, I, like, I never, like, considered, like, oh, this is, like, happening in the 90s, or this is happening, like, in the 80s, and maybe that's because I grew up in, like, the early 2000s, so I was just, like, so when I first watched it, I was just, like, oh, like, this could be happening, like, right now, you know, or, like, this could have been happening, like, not too long ago, like, this seems, this doesn't seem too old, you know, like, thinking that, you know, so, like, it's a it's a rural community but no it's a it's a it's a good movie it's a really good movie i think yeah there's a lot to learn from it and and really like appreciate with it oh. asif hawk a grad student working on his masters at portland state university is a self-described admirer of film particularly from the great auteurs the Stanley Kubricks, the Wes Andersons, the Richard Linklaters, the David Cronenbergs, and the Quentin Tarantinos of the movie sphere. No, there's. I recognize that there are some iconic directors and iconic movies that have just told very beautiful stories and um, and like very saddening stories and just amazing stories, you know. Um, and I guess, I guess my relationship with film is more so, more so like an appreciation of it. Um, is there something, cause I feel like What's Eating Gilbert Grape is very much coming of age story. Um, is there something about coming of age movies that you're kind of drawn to in particular? I think so. Um, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a point of change. Um, it, of course, like it's a coming of age movie. It's uh, in the name of it, but just what's even Gilbert Grape is just there's so many um, I don't know it's just so many different aspects of it you know like, have you seen the have you seen the movie I have yep yep I just yeah I, yeah I just um, watched it right before this 
okay yeah yeah no it's a no like just like with the everything that you know like the health issues of the mom and how she struggles with obesity um and you know like how it's almost like her um way to deal with her depression of her husband committing suicide in the in the basement and and you know and then there's there's Gilbert there's Johnny Depp and you know he's taking care of um Arnie Leonardo DiCaprio and you know and he's constantly being told like oh you don't do shit like around excuse my language but like you don't do anything around the house you know and like stuff like that and I don't, and like no one really like recognizes and appreciates like you know he's taking care of Arnie he's like making sure he doesn't climb up the water tower and um and yeah and then like his affair with like that one woman is you know and like yeah no it's I think it tells it tells a really real story I think you know I think um and I, I appreciated the rural rural aspect of it as well you know, it makes me feel like, oh, like, this could be, like, in Kansas or Nebraska or somewhere around here, you know? Like, yeah. What's Eating Gilbert Grape, written by Peter Hedges and directed by Lassa Hallstrom, follows Gilbert Grape, a young man looking to find any way out of his hometown of Endora, Iowa. He's jaded by taking care of his overweight mother, his two sisters, his little brother Arnie who has autism, and becoming the de facto father figure of the house after his actual father's suicide. Debuting in 1993, the film also notably landed Leonardo DiCaprio his first ever Oscar nomination. When I first watched it, I was pretty, I was pretty young because like I, my, my sister, she uh, first watched it and told me about it, and that's how I, um, you know, first watched it. You know, I was probably in middle school. Um, and then I, I rewatched it not too long ago, probably like a couple weeks ago. And yeah, no, I definitely have an, uh, an appreciation uh, for it because I'm from Kansas. I'm from the Midwest. And it makes me think back to when I first watched it. Like, you know, I, I didn't pick up on like the little things of like, oh, like, like when it where it actually like is happening and, and such. And no, no, just try to appreciate like the storyline of it. Um, but no, it made me think like, oh, like this this could this could be this could be happening in Kansas you know this could be happening in Nebraska or like in in Oklahoma you know like this could this could be this can't be like the only family that's going through something like this let's touch on the story a little bit here I know I know you mentioned um this you know the small town vibes you right you know the rural setting of this movie nothing happens in Andorra Iowa he says you know describing Andorra is like dancing to no music um you know, the, and it opens with that with that scene of him and of Gilbert and Arnie kind of watching the campers go by as this like yearly tradition. Um, I kind of wanted to dig in a little more into that and just this this idea of I don't know if hopelessness is too like dramatic or drastic, but like this idea of just kind of accepting like this is what it is and like this sense of like I guess not not as maybe not lost in America, but kind of just kind of stuck in a rut, if you will. Yeah, no, it, it almost kind of is like being being and feeling like you're lost in America, you know, like, oh, no, I, I can't doubt that there are people who live in these rural towns um, and they feel that they've been left behind by the rest of the country and how, yeah, 
you know, how, or the rest of the state, how certain parts of the states develop and um, in relation to other parts, you know, and like the rural and urban divide um, and then the digital divide that's associated with it, like to talk about, um, I don't know, like the happening in a very technical way. Um, but yeah, and there is like, you know, somewhat of a, like there's, gosh, it's, there's a, there's a hopelessness feeling to it, but there's also almost like a comforting acceptance of it. Almost like this is home. Um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting because it's also kind of like a, a battle where it's like, yeah, where like you feel like you're stuck in a rut here, um, but then it's simultaneously it's like, oh, this is my home, my family's here. Like I lived here all my life. Like, like, but yeah, I want to leave. But if I leave, like, what's gonna happen here? Like, what is it? Is it still gonna be here when when I want to return? Or, right? You know yeah. what I mean? No, I definitely yeah. do. Um, there, there's kind of a another element in Gilbert uh, that kind of permeates throughout this film. This idea of kind of shame and guilt. You know, he's kind of shameful of his mom. And, you know, how she has kind of, uh, I guess, you know, kind of grown through the loss of their, his dad, um, this kind of shame of this like affair, this illicit affair that he's involved with, with I think Betty Carver, the, the lady down the street or whatever. And, you know, and he kind of, he kind of has to overcome that throughout the film. Uh, I'm just curious what you thought of that element of this and how Gilbert, like as, many, as with many coming of age stories, he really has to find his way uh, through that kind of emotional turmoil. Yeah, no, I really felt for him. Like, I really felt, like, kind of bad for him. But at the same time, like, there's that element, like, hey, like, kind of creating your own problems. Um, but, you know, what? I'm, I'm trying to remember, like, didn't Betty Carver, um, like, um, like, she was, like, paying him, wasn't she? She was like, having him deliver groceries uh, to her house. And I think, yeah, I mean, I mean even one time, uh, the first time they're shown, his, her husband ends up paying him for the delivery, even though his wife was trying to to bang Gilbert. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and I, if I remember correctly, didn't, didn't the husband commit suicide too? Right, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, I think yeah, there, that... there was like a slight thing of like they thought that she did it, but he ended up drowning in that like kiddie pool or whatever. Yeah, yeah, gosh, and that's such a, that's so tough, you know, on a person to have to, you know, work through, but yeah, it leaves you wondering, you know, like about like after the movie, like, oh, what ha what happened to Gilbert and and Arnie and that their family? You know, you want to hope for the best for them. Um, but no, that's such a what a difficult path, you know, in a small town and like, you know, and in where they feel like is probably the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah. Um, and kind of along with that, you know, I feel like grief certainly plays a lot, uh, a, a huge role in this, you know, and, I mean, I think he, Gilbert says at one point, mama was in shock for years um, after his dad died, you know, and even before his dad died, he was absent in a way, and it was like he was already dead even before he had hanged himself, um, you know, and, and, and it seems, at least to me, that they never quite picked up all the pieces after the after the metaphorical tower came crashing down right you know 17 years ago whenever his dad died um how do you feel like this movie kind of plays with grief not only 
just in general, but also, you know, with a guy around Gilbert's age, you know, not a probably 20, 20-ish years old, 21, something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up um, because when the, when the story begins, the movie begins, um, there's immediately like talk of like the house, like, you know, being needing to be repaired and like the, the shingles on the roofs kind of looking like they're about to fall off and stuff like that. And it's, and I think that was just like, a, uh, like an illusion, like it alluded to, um, like the life, like the life of the family. And, and, and you don't, when you, you know, the movie's just beginning. So you don't really know, like, like why, you know, like what, what, ha- what happened, you know, like, why is, you know, why is their house uh, as an allusion to their life uh, in, in disrepair, you know, and, and then you, and then you learn more as you watch the movie about what the family has gone through and has had to overcome. Um, and, and I'm just, I feel like, you know, maybe this is probably just me, like, just conjuring it up by myself, but, you know, I, f- I feel like Gilbert, you know, felt probably some pressure or, you know, or like the responsibility of having to take care of the house and, and the family and, and, you know, like, and just like, and it was a constant, you know, and um and there's probably some tendency for him to just disassociate from what's actually going on definitely and and i think it's such an interesting uh kind of i guess dilemma going on inside him of this idea of how he feels so responsible for his family but there are a few moments where he like you mentioned like he kind of disassociates himself you know he's so responsible for Arnie but then he is the one who actually hits him right you know he said if anybody lays a finger on you I'll take care of it but then he ends up being the I guess the dealer of the blow um I mean how did, how did you feel like he kind of dealt with that and just you know kind of being this like surrogate father in a way but it doesn't seem like it's a responsibility he even really wants fully yeah and like it, it he didn't have much of a choice either in in it uh and you know like he had somewhat of a choice and it gets back to like should I stay or should I go like do I leave this fan like my family here like what will happen to them if I leave um but like everything that I could that I could have if I left and went to enjoy like my own life um but no he doesn't I don't think he handles the eastern of you know laid a hand on Arnie like that you know I don't think he handles that well um but there are a lot of things that he he didn't really handle well in throughout the story like I don't think that he should have been having an affair um with that with that woman um and uh you know it's I wonder if the uh you know like the the guy running the grocery store if he knew if he knew if that affair was going on, you know, cause he was always the one that told Gilbert that he had a delivery to take to that woman's house. And, but like, you know, you don't, I don't think the story ever makes clear of that, but it's one of those things that leaves you wondering about the story, uh, which, I, which is something great about, you know, about great stories. 
and that how great stories are able to do that. Um, but no, like, of course, Gilbert, Gilbert made a lot of mistakes and you, you see those mistakes that, that he makes, you know, and, and those are ultimately mistakes that he lives with, like, it, you know, in the reality of the, of the storyline. Um, but as viewers of, of the movie, like we learn from it, we learn like how we should act and how we shouldn't and what, what we should, what we should and shouldn't do and how, how to treat people in a way and treat ourselves. And, and I think that's, yeah, great, great quality of a story. Definitely. Um, you know, another interesting part of this is uh, Juliet Lewis's character, Becky, um, you know, her and her grandma are passing through and, you know, I think her grandma at one point says, you know, Becky's been about any place there is to go. And, you know, how Gilbert is very much resigned to the fact that he's stuck in Andorra. And she's like, you know, this is as good a place as any, right? And so I'm just curious what you thought of that juxtaposition between Becky, who has basically, as they say, like been everywhere and finds even the, the bright spots in Andorra where they're, I guess, stuck in a way. And Gilbert, who's, who has a very narrow worldview and this is all he knows. And he, since he's kind of stuck here, chooses to believe, chooses to see more of the negative aspects of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's not, I, you know, I, I don't think that's uncommon. You know, Becky almost kind of lives in this, in, in, in a different world than Gilbert. You know, she has the ability to go and pursue, um, you know, her own life. And that's, that's amazing, you know, and she's able to come back and see her family. I think it's just her mom. Um, and that's great, you know, like that's, um, that's like the best outcome. And yeah, and it, Gilbert doesn't really have that. And, and I think his recognition of it is what kind of breeds the, you know, kind of the resentment and the pessimism toward, you know, where he's living, um, that rural area and like his, you know, his situation with his family and having to take care of Arnie. Um, but no, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um, and it also says something that Becky comes back, you know, there's, there's a quality about the town about you know the environment that's intrinsic to it you know like the way the wind blows and how the sun rises and how it sets like almost and that that draws her back you know like she's been every yeah she's well traveled has a wide world view but like she chooses to come back because that's still home to her and i wonder if that's how gilbert feels and um yeah I think there's a version of this story um, that would have Arnie die at the end, right? You know how they say it was, a, it was a surprise he made it even past the age of 10 and the doctors basically said any day now he could die, but he doesn't, right? You know, he, he survives the whole time through this story. Even in the end, he said, you know, at the beginning, it was he's waiting for his 18th birthday. Beginning, he's waiting for his 19th birthday. Um, what did you think of that choice almost a subversive choice in a lot of ways if instead of making this like a tragedy of Arnie and how he was like taken too soon to you know obviously he went through a lot of like trials and tribulations throughout this story but 
you know, the choice to, I guess, keep him, keep him alive the whole way through. Yeah, I think there's um, probably a way to say that blessings exist, you know, in the, in the story. And that in and of itself is a blessing. And, um, you know, not everybody in reality have, has the, uh, those same blessings like that. Um, and I'm glad that the story didn't end like on the tragic note like that. And I'm also glad that it, because I feel like if it did end like that, then the focus of the movie and who in the, in the roles of the actors uh, would be balanced more toward um, Leo and Leonardo DiCaprio's role of Arnie. You know, it would be, I feel like if the movie did end in that tragedy, the uh, the movie would then be more, you know, from a, a viewership wise and how you perceive it, it would be viewed more along the lines of uh, of Arnie's point of view and worldview in that in that movie. Whereas I think how it did end and how the movie was filmed and how we were able to watch it and stuff, um, it, you get kind of like this balanced view, I think, of like, of of Becky's life, of Gilbert's life, of Arnie's life, of Gilbert's mom's life and his siblings' lives. Um, but yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question too. I'm glad that it didn't end like that. But that was kind of like a, like a blessing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say though, I, I think it is worth touching on the fact that there is a death near the end of this film. Um, you know, how mama ends up dying and instead of you know I think there's obviously that as we talked about earlier there's a lot of grief in this movie and initially the the kids are just around the bed just sobbing as anyone would if their mom died um but you know then they they you know they get the cops there they get the authorities there and they they think they even joke like it's oh it's going to take the national guard to get her out or like a crane or whatever and Gilbert is beside himself saying you know I'm not going to let her become a joke and they choose to, instead of going through this process that might, you know, blow the whole situation up and bring a crowd and all that to gawk at her and stuff, they decide to burn the house down, you know, as kind of this, uh, I guess, fire ritual, if you will. Um, what did you think of that choice uh, to kind of put a, I guess, an end note on that relationship um, in the near the end of this movie? Oh, gosh, you're just picking, you're mentioning such good parts of the movie, Brayden. Thank you. Um, I think there was a lot of symbolism behind uh, the house burning and, you know, like it being like a, uh, a funeral of that in that way. You know, it's uh, the death of the mother and also in a way like a death of the father again, you know, them choosing to burn the house down. Um, that like in that scene was almost a wave of them leaving you know the death of the or being okay or I don't even know how to put into words like getting uh, used to yeah getting used to like their father being gone you know and at simultaneously like learning how to um, you know kind of like cope with the loss of their mother um and it makes me, yeah, no, that's a, and yeah, it's, I'm 
makes you think like like wow you know it takes that's a lot of grit you know to just burn or to yeah to like put like an end to that um yeah to like an like an almost like an unhealthy coping mechanism um and and yeah in a way gilbert did um save his mom from facing a lot of humiliation um post-mortem for asif what's eating gilbert grape stands among the best films of its era and its relatability makes it so endearing you know you, you really watch it and especially if you're from like the midwest like especially if you're from anywhere in the midwest like you watch it and you think like wow like this could be happening like this could be the life of somebody who lives like you know in, in the rural areas like 20 minutes south or out, out outside of town you know like um and yeah there's like you watch it and you I, I just feel like you, you like especially if you're from the midwest like you feel like somewhat of a connection to uh the struggles of of this family of the people of the town like how they um socialize and no it's very it's very interesting movie very interesting i think like I don't know if you want if I think also if you're just wanting to get in get into like good movies just and just good directing and role playing and storylines like that's just one of the movies that you need that that you need to see like I really think I really think so I think it's probably one of the best movies of the 90s um I think I have a long list of really good movies of the 90s and but no like I think yeah yeah Thing. If you haven't watched it, you should really watch it. <laughs> As we wrap up part one of our coming-of-age series, we'll stay within the same era of film and pop culture, or at least be nostalgic for that time. My name is Cami Coons, and my favorite movie is mid-90s. Cami Coons, a graduating senior at the University of Kansas, has, as she says, always, always loved movies. In high school, I did the... Uh... International Baccalaureate program, which most people don't even know what that is, so I'm not going to go into explaining it, but uh, at the end of it, you have to write like a 20-page research paper based on one of the courses that you've taken, and my school didn't offer the film, the IB film course, so I took it upon myself to teach myself all of the curriculum from the course so that I could do my extended essay on uh, film, so I ended up writing it about... uh, comparing Wes Anderson films to French New Wave cinema, which are two of my favorite styles of film. Um, And then when I got to college, I ended up coming in as a journalism and film major. Uh, And I just, I've always loved studying movies, talking about movies. Uh, I think it's one of the prettiest and most intricate art forms that there is. And I think that's really where my basis comes from. I definitely look at it as an art form and as a place for social change. Now, with that in mind, it's also understandable why Cami hates the question, what is your favorite movie? But I asked anyway. I'm no longer a film major. I actually dropped it. But when I was a film major, that is the question that every single person asks you always. And it's like, I... Well, one, I'm just bad at picking favorites of anything. Uh, I don't work that way. (laughs) I'm too, like, systematic or not systematic enough. But 
Um, it's just a hard question to answer because there's so many different elements about every film that have different merits and whatnot. But for me, mid nineties has always held a special place in, in my mind because when I first watched it, I rented it from Liberty Hall's video rental things. And I watched it on some random school night and I was like, oh, it's a short movie. I'll be able to, you know, watch it real quick and then do my homework. And I had an assignment due at midnight or something. I watched that movie. And as soon as it was over, I wanted to play it again, like just start it over from the beginning. And I've never felt that way about another film. Um, and I, I actually wasn't able to watch it again because I did have that midnight assignment due date. But uh, after that, it was I immediately went and like bought a copy of it because I was like, I need to own this. And then every single person that I cared about that was like important to me, I was like, all right, so you're coming over this day and we're watching mid 90s. And I probably watched it like five times in the span of two months, you know, um, and that's just never a relationship that I've had with a movie before. I've had tons of movies that I love. Obviously, I mentioned Wes Anderson and like French New Wave stuff. Those are some of my favorite styles of films and things I've seen over and over, but I've never had that same reaction to a film as I did with mid-90s. Everything about the movie is so good. I mean, there's not an element that I don't like. It's It makes me cry. It makes me laugh. It's shot on 16 millimeters, so it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and you can tell that just the amount of soul in it is just so great. I'm not a skateboarder, uh, so I'm just a poser liking this movie. Uh, but it's just, I don't know. And then the music as well is so good in it too. And just pulling back all of that. Um, God, I don't know the total number. I would say probably around 10. I definitely slowed down watching it for a while. Um, and a couple months, no, actually probably just a couple weeks ago. I hadn't seen it in a while and I was like, you know, I'm really getting an itch to watch it again. This is, and it, it still held up. It's such a good movie. Every time I watch it, I feel like I, I get a little something different out of it too. So 2018's mid nineties written and directed by Jonah Hill centers on a group of skateboarders in you guessed it, the mid nineties in Southern California. The story follows Stevie who partly to escape his unstable home life and also to find friends and fit in seeks out the crew at the local skate shop, Ray, Ruben, Fuckshit, and Fourth Grade. It's ultimately a coming-of-age tale of acceptance, loss of innocence, and how the 90s really were the golden age for hip-hop. You know, obviously the score here is that, that Reznor-Ross duo that's kind of taking over Hollywood in some respects. You know, Trent Reznor's, like, second career in a lot of ways. And, you know, Jonah Hill, who we'll get to him in a second, but, you know, he really curated this soundtrack with a lot of love, a lot of 90s hip-hop, a lot of... Uh, music of that mid 90s era i mean what about the music stands out to you i mean what what are some favorite songs or tracks from this um, that kind of stand out some of your favorites oh yeah uh so definitely uh passing me by is the song that they play at the end when um fourth grade shows his little movie that he that he made and so that song just like really encapsulates the whole movie i feel like and it's such a great song a lot of the songs in here i mean i've thought that I was pretty into 90s hip-hop and knew quite a lot of them but I didn't know a lot of the songs in this before watching the movie and it just really is so it's such a great period piece even though it's not you know actually from it and you know I think the music plays a huge part in this um but you know this a lot of this film and like it's a period piece as you mentioned 
is capturing that mid 90s aesthetic and not only just the music but just the vibes of it in a way you know for lack of a better term and the look of it you know the right posters on the wall the right dress that everybody wears I mean what did you think um about how Jonah and his team kind of captured the aesthetics of that you know that 93 94 95 uh, period in this film yeah uh that is a fantastic point and also Anytime I look at film and study film, one of my favorite things to look at is the mise-en-scene and looking at all the elements in it, which is particularly why I love Wes Anderson films because of his uh, impeccable attention to detail. So I truly believe that every single scratch on the wall or tint to the paint in a movie has a meaning and a purpose to it. Uh, and this movie is obviously no exception. I mean, they seriously were so thorough in making sure that all of all of the elements, everything you see on screen, everything you hear is, is perfectly uh, to the period. And I think I even, what was I listening to most recently where someone was talking about it? But there was, I don't, maybe it was another interview with Jonah Hill about, oh, I know what it was. It was a... Uh, illegal civ video interviewing uh jonah hill which illegal civ is run by god what's his name do you know what i'm talking about um i do not actually um, i can't think of the name of the guy who runs it but he was a co-producer on mid 90s and he okay. illegal civ is like a, a huge like skateboarding production company kind of um they have a really cool youtube channel highly recommend anyway side tangent I was watching that and there was this part where I think the set designer was like no 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 no. we have to go back and like mask out this this thing that showed up in the background because that was from like 97 and this is taking place I don't know the years but it's taking place in this year and you know it's a detail that literally no one would notice but those things are what make it so authentic and like perfectly capturing those years yeah, and we mentioned him a few times, but, you know, Jonah Hill um, has had such a fascinating career, I think. Um, you know, he really, you know, growing up, if you will, he, you know, he was known for those, you know, teen comedies and just really comedy in general. And, you know, Moneyball, I feel like, was really the shift in his career, right? You know, he he's taken seriously as an actor now. You know, he gets the Oscar nomination. Wolf of Wall Street's still a comedy, but definitely more of a seat because of Scorsese and Leo and all that gets another Oscar nomination. And now, you know, with the backing of, you know, Marty and the whole, I mean, he, he's behind the camera now. I mean, what did you think of, you know, just even going into it, you know, what did you think of like Joan, this Jonah Hill guy, you know, taking his turn behind the camera and, you know, as obviously picking it for this conversation, it turned out pretty well in your eyes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I mentioned it at the beginning. I was like, Jonah Hill, I mean, how good is this a comedy? What is it about? You know, why is he making it about this like little kid in the 90s? You know, like this, honestly, it sounds, the concept kind of sounds stupid. And then I, again, another podcast, the A24 podcast is my absolute all time favorite podcast. Um, but the first ever episode that I listened to was Jonah Hill and. Oh gosh, who's the, I always forget his name. Why can't I think of who it is? Um, he's a funny guy and Michael he's Sarah? in, yes, thank you. Gah, I don't know, I don't know why I can't remember his name Sorry. ever. Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah on the A24 podcast and talking about the movie and their, their 
projects and stuff and just hearing Jonah Hill talk about it and realizing that it was his baby that he'd worked on forever and it was kind of a thing where he said this is what I've wanted to do is to write and produce movies and this is you know my story but also just you know a great coming of age story so I think hearing him talk about that and just when someone's passionate about something it's pretty uh easy to hear and understand that they're passionate about it so just hearing him talk about it I was like all right I have to give this movie a chance like I I bet it's going to be good no totally and you know I'm curious what else else will you know do behind the camera moving forward here because you know it's been coming on three years um since this film but um Mm -hmm. Now I want to talk about the kids uh, in this movie, and you know I, I was I was doing a little research on this, and um, Jonah was listing some of the inspirations um, for this film, and one of them was the Sandlot uh, that stuck out to me. And obviously, you know that is a film, obviously has a lot of sentimentality, nostalgic behind it, nostalgia behind it. But you know I think a lot of that, what works about that movie is that group of kids, right? You know the Benny the Jet and all those guys. Um, but, you know, what, what did you think of mid-90s, you know, a lot of unknowns, right? A lot of, you know, uh, first-time actors in a lot of respects. What did you think of the rapport of this kind of, this group of skaters, this group of kids in this film? Oh, well, it's so clear. I think anyone who watches this movie wants to be a skateboarder because just the friendship that they have, and that's a huge part of the movie too, is like, you know, when, when one of us is down, we're going to pick the other one up and we're going to go skating. You know, there's that great scene with um, Sonny and um, Ray? where they go. What? Ray. Is that who yes, about? Ray. When they go, they go skating together after um, his mom comes in and yells at him for, for hanging out with these guys. And then there's that really great Morrissey song over it. And it's just, it's such a moment where you realize that the connection they have through skating is so real and unparalleled to really any other connection. It's kind of like when you're, if you play sports, like the connection you have with your teammates, if you've played together for a long time is, is really different than you have with any other set of friends. So yeah, it's definitely very clear that they all have been together for a while and have built that relationship off camera. Yeah, and, and there's there's one other guy that I wanted to highlight who um, is kind of, whether he wants to be or not, arguably the A24 poster child, and that's Lucas Hedges. Um, <laughs> and uh, Lucas Hedges, you know, he he's not not a not a huge role in this, but you know, plays older brother Ian. And you know, there's a very interesting dynamic between him and Stevie, right? You know, that brother dynamic of just literally you know, physically and emotionally abusing him on a lot of this film. I mean, what did you think of Lucas Hedges performance and also just the, you know, the relationship between him uh, and uh, Stevie? Yeah. So I think now that you mentioned that, I actually forgot that when I first saw this, uh, I think that the relationship between the brothers was actually really impactful on me because I am eight years older than my younger brother and 11 years older than my younger sister. And so I've never really had a super close relationship to them. It's always been more of like a babysitter type vibe <laughs> between me and my siblings. And I definitely feel like, you know, not seeing, I, I've I've been a mean older sibling, not to the extent of, of in this film, the way that they treat each other. Um, but definitely I've, been the the mean older sister and I think it definitely 
put it into perspective of like how much your younger siblings really look up to you and how important it is to be there for them uh no matter no matter how you see no matter how that manifests itself you know like at the end when he hands him the jug of orange juice in the uh in the hospital that's that's all it took for them to to kind of make up there and show that they care about each other and they love each other um but I didn't recognize him in this film because he's got the blonde hair. He looks completely different than all the other films I've seen him in. And I think it was probably like the second time that I watched it before I realized it was him in it because I'd seen him in Lady Bird and I was like, what the heck? That's the same guy. <laughs> but fantastic performance. And uh, I think that side story is could easily be ignored in some aspects of the film but it's also one of the most touching areas of it yeah and another another guy with that Wes Anderson connection um of course um and you know another part of that home life is um you know their mom Dabney played by Catherine Waterston who is just phenomenal in everything she's in I feel like um and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, as, as we're kind of told throughout this movie, you know, she had her kids young and, you know, they don't have a father figure in the house and she's, you know, really going through some, some rough patches there and there's a strained relationship there. And so um, kind of on the other side of it, what did you think of, you know, that, that mother son or mother son's relationship? You know, I think of the moment, you know, when they, when she, they steal the money from the drawer, right. You know, have that, that confrontation period. I mean, what did you think? of you know that mother-son relationship uh that was another thing that I think I personally related to because my mom was 17 when she had me uh so when they have that conversation when she's like you know at my 18th birthday party I was breastfeeding you <laughs> and they have that conversation and then she's kind of talking about her love life and the kids are just like sitting there like this is our mom we have to deal with this but they clearly have even though their relationship is different than, than the poster family, um, it's, it's still a great relationship and you can tell how much she cares for Stevie. You know, she comes in and, and yells at the guys because she doesn't know what's happening to her son. She doesn't see him anymore. He doesn't want to do blockbuster night with her anymore. Um, I think she really, she does a fantastic job of being that, you know, she's trying to find herself too. And she's trying to figure out how to be the the perfect mom or not perfect mom, but to be the mom that her kids need her to be. And I think, you know, towards the end, there's the, the big turning point when she walks out into the, the uh, emergency room lobby and sees all the guys laying there, even though they're beat up, they were, they were waiting for Stevie to wake up and find out what happened to him. And she's like, do you guys, do you guys want to go see him? And so that's kind of the, the turning point where you see that she's realized, okay, to be a good mom, I have to be here for them, but I also have to support the the things that they want to do and the people that they want to be around. Sure. And, you know, I feel like a large, large part of this movie, you know, kind of centers around how uh, impressionable Stevie is in a lot of ways. And, you know, I mean, those early conversations with Ruben just telling him he can't say thank you because he'll be gay or people think he's gay or whatever. And, you know, he says it, he says, uh, he brings it up to Ray and, and fuck shit, which we haven't even brought him up yet, but, um, <laughs> you know, and they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, th you, thank you, just common manners. I mean, what, what did you think of kind of how this, in a way, it's kind of a comedy of manners and how, um, you know, he's trying, he's trying to find himself and he's trying to find, you know, this 
this line between what's acceptable behavior and what's not. And like, in a lot of ways, what it means to be a man. And mm-hmm. I mean, what, what did you think of that aspect of the film? I, I mean, I was never a popular kid in school. And so I think you can, you can definitely see that dynamic of where you want this sense of belonging so badly and you want to fit in. Even like the first time he shows up, or I guess it's like the second time he shows up at the skate shop and he's just sitting out back while they're all skating and he's just hugging his little dinosaur skateboard. And uh, Ruben comes up and uh, Ray's like, you drank all the water, uh, go fill it up, you know? And then Ruben hands it to, to um, Stevie. And he's the look on his face of being so excited to have any sort of, even though he's being the runt of the group, to just to run down and fill up the, the water jug. He's so excited to be able to do that. And I think that really just speaks to how all of us are just looking for any sort of, you know, belonging from the tribe, from the people around you. You want to feel like you're a part of the group. And then later, you know, he he thinks that he has to do these things to fit in with them. But at the end, I mean, not the end, but overall, the things that make him liked the most are when he's himself, uh, you know how he gets his nickname as sunburn when he's just, you know, he's joking around and he, he says something that, you know, is probably not the, the cool thing to say, but it's what he would say. And then, uh, oh, what was the other example I was going to use? Just everything about, oh, when he um, goes down the roof. Yes. He's looking to, to fit in and do what everyone else is doing, but he's also saying, no, I know that I, I can do that. Like, I believe that I can do it. He's doing it to show off. He's not taking all these hits to show off and thinking that that's going to get him the acceptance he's looking for. I think he's generally just that determined of, of a person. And so the things that ultimately buy him the most um, sense of belonging and what get all of the, the guys to like him and see him for who he is, is just him being himself. You know, he stops listening to Ruben telling him that he can't do certain things because that's not what people do or whatever. And he starts just really fully acting like himself. And I guess that's probably the overall message of the film, you know, and the, the coming of age story truly is, you know, stop caring about what other people think and be yourself and people will like you for that. Yeah, definitely. And another you know, staple of that story is this loss of innocence um, that he kind of undergoes. And you know, I think of a couple moments here, you know, that, that very, I guess for lack of a term, raunchy game of would you rather um, at the beginning there, uh, you know, how Stevie is, you know, he, I think he lies to Ruben, but he basically smoking his first cigarette, um, you know, the party scene, you know, and when the girl takes him back, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways he's growing up real quick and and you know so what what did you think of you know those moments that stevie is kind of you know like you mentioned that that idea of being accepted maybe having to do things that maybe you're not emotionally prepared for yeah i think that's one of the hardest aspects of this film to talk about is especially that party scene because every single you know i've shown this movie to so many different people and every time we get to that scene and they're like um did she just like, you know, basically molest a minor? And it's like, okay, I don't know. There's kind of an underscoring of that happening, but also at the same time, it's it's not. And I think part of that is kind of the time period too. 
and the fact that he's hanging out with all I don't know I have such mixed opinions on this whole section I do love the cigarette scene though where he (laughs) he takes a hit of it or a puff of it and he's like uh no these are just different brands than the ones that I smoke like it's such a stupid lie and it's so obvious that he's never smoked a cigarette before um and then how he runs home and like sprays the the spray all over him so that his mom doesn't smell it on him yeah he grows up so quickly but at the same time you see him in his private life uh at home and he has those those moments of kind of self-harm and where you can tell that he's battling with all these kind of inner demons and he has all these thoughts that are definitely beyond his age I think he's supposed to be like 12 13 in this movie which again I hate bringing up how old he's supposed to be because that's the party scene is just I don't know what to make of that scene still no matter how many times I've seen it but yeah I don't, I don't really know what else to say about that no that's that's totally fair it's it's difficult subject matter for sure um and, you know, it's interesting just to even, I think that's a great point to balance, like, it is the 90s, right, the mid-90s, and it's so tricky, I think, to, like, like transpose, like, 2021 ideals into, like, 30, 20, 30, 40 plus years ago, because, you know, it's just, it was a different time. It doesn't make it right, but it's just a different time, and, you know, it's, it's so fascinating to look at that, but... Um, glad you brought up you know that breakdown at the at the end there you know where he he wraps the cords around his neck and suicide attempt basically and you know and and that obviously leads to his mom telling the crew off and there's a great line um, that Ray tells Steve that I wrote down here you know I'm paraphrasing but he says I think if you look at anybody else's closet you wouldn't trade your shit for their shit and you know a lot of it and he tells you know the st- real story of like how he met fourth grade and you know fuck shit uh how they like how they came up together and you know there's a lot of it about finding yourself and I think that's another big part of this and I know we've kind of touched on it a little bit but what did you think of that moment and you know this idea of you know you may you may want to be all these things but when you actually kind of you know look behind the curtain there it may not be as I guess cool as you think it is yeah, I think that's definitely uh, my favorite part of the film is that conversation that they have there. Because I think especially when you're growing up and at that age, I mean, he's basically a middle school age. And if you think back to yourself in middle school, all you could possibly think about is what other people think of you. And this is kind of something that we've talked about. But I mean, the movie is really saying, be yourself. And that's that's what's going to get you there. And so that conversation with Ray where he's he says that is like you know everyone has has stuff in their closet that they're dealing with and that that's difficult to get through and what we have is that we can be here for one another and that's what the whole their whole little friendship really represents um I don't know I just always have that that Morrissey song and that scene where they're skating down that big hill in the turning lane is such a gorgeous scene to me with the sunset and I don't know it's it's just it's such a beautiful scene I don't have much else to say about it than that it's yeah it's a turning point for sure in the movie I think and I think that's what Stevie keeps coming back after that not just for that sense of belonging but because he realizes that his friends are there for him just like he can be there for them 
Now, for those who can't fully invest in the story or have an aversion to characters named fuck shit, this may not be the movie for you. But for people who I think could handle the movie, I would say, I mean, a lot of the things I've said to you that when I watched it, I immediately wanted to rewatch it because it's it's that good that it's made me laugh and cry and think about my own relationships as a an older sister, as a, a daughter, as a friend. Um, and just overall that it's absolutely gorgeous and yeah, and that the music is good. <laughs> Those are all the things that I look for in a film. So if someone told me that, I'd be like, all right, it's top of my list now. <laughs> coming up next on the Formative Films Project, part two of our coming of age series. I think that Lady Bird, like, I love it because it hits all the right notes for me, like, especially for that transitional period, like end of high school, moving on to college. You're like fighting so hard to be independent, but you're not independent. It was always just a movie that I always loved to fall back onto. Um, if there was something like I didn't know what to watch at the time, it was always The Breakfast Club was the first one to pop up. Um, my cat is named Ferris. Like, I love this movie. Um, and then I say that and I was like, am I too old to still like, is this still like the movie for me? And then I watched it last night and when he sits up in bed and he's like, they bought it. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is my favorite movie. Like, <laughs>